This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 26, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. The Supreme Court today held narrowly that marriage, this time including same-sex marriage, is a fundamental right and cannot be abridged by states. I spoke with Cato's Roger Pallon and Walter Olson about the impact of this for a special edition of Cato Connects. What did the court decide today? And I guess as importantly, what did the court not decide today? Well, the court decided that same-sex marriage is required under the Constitution, both pursuant to the uh, 14th Amendment's uh, due process clause and its equal protection clauses. It is a fundamental right. Moreover, all states have to recognize it and have to recognize the marriages that were consummated in other states. So this was a big win for proponents of same-sex marriage. At the same time, the soaring rhetoric of uh, Justice Kennedy in writing the opinion, which not surprisingly uh, Justice Scalia had a field day with, was not really uh, in most respects relevant to the legal aspects of this case. It would have been much better if Justice Kennedy had focused and done a more thorough job of fleshing out the legal foundations for the holding. So if he'd had more time, he could have written a shorter opinion? (laughs) That's one way of putting it, and it's probably the best way to put it. All right. Walter Olson? Before the decision came out, there was a lot of speculation as to not so much which way Justice Kennedy would go. People guessed that correctly. But which rationale he would adopt? Would he rest on due process or equal protection or animus or even sex discrimination? Uh, There were a number of options, and yet he didn't clearly take any of them. He kind of drove by all of them, waving pleasantly to each. But as Roger hinted, the Uh, To the extent that he provides a legal rationale, it's on an interaction between due process and equal protection. I call this the gin and tonic theory of of a new constitutional right. Neither of them alone would make a satisfying uh, rationale in in his view. Uh, Due process indicates that marriage, the right to marry, is a fundamental right but doesn't get you all the way to same-sex marriage. Equal protection lends the idea that there is discrimination going on uh, that is bad and that requires scrutiny. But it's remarkable the extent to which uh, Kennedy threw away or at least refused to invoke the familiar apparatus, the the groaning machinery of scrutiny levels and uh, basically the precedent of how the the court has addressed things like equal protection in the past. Um, He didn't bring that in. Uh, Even his favorite word animus uh, from Romer V. Evans is nowhere in the opinion. All right. So, but but we do. I mean, to say that you're essentially combining rationales, we do combine different rights afforded us by, say, the First Amendment when we uh, get together in groups and freely associate and then speak in those groups, right? Yeah. I mean, in fact, uh, to pick up on this point that uh, uh, Wally ended on, the idea that. Uh, that he did not invoke scrutiny theory uh, and talk about fundamental, non-fundamental rights, strict scrutiny, uh, rational basis test, and all the other paraphernalia of modern uh, constitutional jurisprudence coming from that infamous Caroline Products decision. The fact that he didn't and spoke mostly about liberty is interesting because it's the same way he went about the, the Lawrence v. Texas case back in 2003. He spoke simply about liberty. Liberty. And Texas, by virtue of criminalizing uh, 
same-sex sodomy uh, had violated the liberty of these people. It doesn't, didn't really matter whether the right to engage in that practice was fundamental or not. Uh, the idea was it's rooted in liberty. And that's, in a way, a good thing because it starts to get us out of the hocus-pocus that came from Caroline products with respect to fundamental and non-fundamental rights. Okay, well, this is from... Uh uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion here. The court in this decision holds that same-sex couples may exercise the fundamental right to marry in all states. It follows that the court also must hold, and it now does hold, that there is no lawful basis for a state to refuse to recognize a lawful same-sex marriage performed in another state on the grounds of its same-sex character. So by getting away from this idea of sussing out fundamental and non-fundamental rights, that where are we getting to a world in which basically all rights are fundamental or well, that we're just not using that particular reasoning to get there? Well, that would be the ideal uh, result from all of this. But he does speak of fundamental right throughout. And um, I don't think that he's going to abandon that because when it comes to, for example, economic liberties, the conservatives on the court, every bit as much as the liberals on the court, will be uh, reluctant to treat economic liberty as a fundamental right. And so they're going to preserve that distinction. And then the reason you draw that distinction is, of course, because you can then come up with two levels of judicial review. That's the tie-in between the two. And if you get to the rational basis test, which, of course, is no test at all, then you can have any statute sail right through with barely a recognition uh, by the court as to its constitutionality or unconstitutionality, and the statute will be upheld. All right. I'm going to get to two questions uh, very quickly. Uh, one is from, they're basically identical questions. They're from Bong Bong and Eric Roll, and they both ask, uh, could this ruling lead to the recognition of other relationships among consenting adults like polygamy, for example? And if not, why not? This was addressed both by Justice Kennedy, uh, who uh, put in language indicating that uh, this decision recognizes the unique quality of uh, having a relationship with one person, a clear signal that he does not consider its logic to carry over, and also by the dissenters who, as conservatives have been doing throughout this debate, uh, said, why not? Where's the logical stopping point? Now, I'm willing to uh, make a prediction here. I'm not sure uh, whether people want to take up a bet, but I would predict that uh, within five or ten years, um, you will not be able to find any Supreme Court justice interested in creating a constitutional right to polygamy. And because you won't be able to find even one, they also will not take it up on certiorari. So we will be denied the entertainment, if entertainment it is, of seeing whether they would actually pursue the logic. All right. Um, so here's another uh, bit from Justice Kennedy's opinion. This is not the first time the court has been asked to adopt a cautious approach to recognizing and protecting fundamental rights. In Bowers, a bare majority upheld a law criminalizing same-sex intimacy. That approach might have been viewed as a cautious endorsement of the democratic process which had only just begun to consider the rights of gays and lesbians, yet in effect, Bowers upheld state action that denied gays and lesbians a fundamental right and caused them pain and humiliation. And that sort of goes to your, your point, Roger, talking about this uh, issue this of fundamental rights and respecting democratic processes. So when we read the dissents in this case, there, this, is a, this is an attack on democracy. So, yes. so, so, so there's that tension that exists, and how do we resolve that right. tension, and how ought we, we right. to resolve that we tension? We see this in all the dissents, but especially in those by Justice Scalia 
and uh, Alito, the separate dissents. And let's note that all four of the conservatives on the court wrote their own dissents uh, in this case. With uh, Scalia, we see uh, the idea that uh, the 14th Amendment ratified in in 1868, at that time, no one thought that it meant to protect same-sex marriage, and therefore, uh, how is it we can find that right today? Uh, Well, of course, if that's the case, then we couldn't have found, as in Loving v. Virginia Virginia in 1967, a right uh, uh, to uh, interracial marriage. And so, but interestingly, he does not use that example as he addresses the issue. But to go to your deeper question, uh, and that's this. And Alito especially addresses uh, this matter, and I wish wish that uh, um, Kennedy had done so as well. Uh, In interpreting the liberty um, aspect of the 14th Amendment, uh, the court has always had trouble. There's a case called Washington v. Glucksburg, uh, which was a a right-to-die case coming out of the state of Washington in 1997, which um, uh, set forth the following. Rehnquist said, how do we determine under our due process jurisprudence what rights are fundamental and not? And he said, we use two criteria. First, the right must be carefully defined. And secondly, it must be deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. Well, he had that backwards. You can't tell if if it's deeply rooted in the nation's history or traditions unless you first carefully defined it. And there is the great problem. And that comes up in in the uh, uh, Alito uh, and Scalia uh, dissents, and so uh, it seems to me that um, uh, that uh, uh, Kennedy does, in a way, cut through that by just speaking of liberty. He doesn't speak about the liberty of uh, so much of same-sex couples to marry. He speaks of the liberty to marry, and so w- what you have to do is get out of this Glucksburg mode and start thinking about not whether it's deeply rooted, because if that were the case, there would be no new rights. We all admit that this is a newly recognized right. And therefore, we're left to conclude that it was always a right, even though we hadn't recognized it. And so it seems to me that this Glucksberg approach is fundamentally wrong. You have to come up with this notion of liberty in all of its aspects. Walter Olson? All four of the dissenters raised the democracy issue of why shouldn't this be decided by the people who were debating it. And it's a very real and legitimate concern, one which in practice uh, Justice Kennedy undoubtedly shares because you don't notice him doing this kind of thing very often. And this gets back to something that uh, Professor John McGinnis pointed out about the workings of the court, which is that 98% of its business is relatively routine cases where it writes for lawyers, where it uh, sticks pretty close to traditional legal reasoning. And then there are those two or three cases every year in which the court sees itself as writing for the ages, sees itself as embodying social change. And it's not as if it has no rules in doing that. It, It does have rules that it follows, but they're different rules. And that's why I think you've got to view this case uh, as one of those, as one in which um, next term, uh, Anthony Kennedy is not going to go around uh, substituting judicial for um, legislative or or democratic policymaking on a bunch of small issues. He doesn't want that. And indeed, none of the other justices are, are pushing for that. He views this in almost a kind of realpolitik as the court, 
I'm, I'm reading his mind, but I think he, he thinks the court is resolving an issue that otherwise would drag on. It is providing certainty in an area where otherwise there would be chaos in people's uh, domestic relations as they travel across uh, state lines. Uh, he sees this as the kind of thing uh, that he doesn't say this in the opinion, but that the court shouldn't do very often, but has to do occasionally. Uh, by the way, Caleb, if I could pick up on that uh, initial point that uh, Wally made with respect to democracy. You see in Scalia's dissent his uh, idea that uh, the Constitution protects only certain rights, leaving everything else to the democratic process. Well, you see, the problem there is that the democratic process uh, oftentimes protects the rights of the majority to tyrannize over the minority. That's exactly what happened in Lawrence, for example, Lawrence v. Texas. And that's it, the definition uh, of a democratic process. That, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And so you'll never get any, well, you rarely get any new rights out of that unless the majority is willing to do that. And of course, that turns the Constitution on its head. Madison stood for the idea that in wide areas, individuals are entitled to be free because they're born free. Nevertheless, in some areas, majorities are entitled to rule because we've authorized them to do so. That gets the Madisonian picture correct. Uh, liberty first, democracy second, as a means to liberty. All right. And this is from uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion. I'm glad you brought that up. An individual can invoke a right to constitutional protection when he or she is harmed, even if the broader public disagrees, even if the legislature refuses to act. Uh, the idea of the, the Constitution, quote, was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy to place them beyond the reach of majorities and, and officials and to establish them as legal principles uh, to be applied by the courts. But there's an inherent contradiction here to preserve, what does it say, certain? That, that, what was certain, it? that's right. Yeah, certain liberties. Uh -huh. that's, the, again, that's the same way that uh, Scalia put it, in fact. Uh, and, and what he really should be saying, Kennedy, that is, is that, look, we don't know how many liberties there are because they're in principle. Well, we do know. There are an infinite number of liberties depending on how you define them, right? Uh, and so the question is, in any case or controversy before the court, there will always be some description that will be an issue. Today, it was same-sex marriage. In Lawrence, it was the right to engage in uh, certain sexual practices. And so you will define it according to as the case comes before the court. And just because you don't find it in the Constitution doesn't mean you don't have it. That's what the Ninth Amendment is all about. Well, and I'll, and I'll ask a related question. I'll throw it open to both of you here. Steve Lear asks, am I wrong in thinking this week's SCOTUS rulings are Tenth Amendment issues? And let's focus on uh, the, the opinion from today. I keep coming back to the Tenth on these, says uh, Steve Lear. Thank you, Steve, for the question. Did the, you're talking about unenumerated rights. Right. So did the Ninth and Tenth Amendments make appearances in the, the various opinions here? Well, one of the subtexts that is fascinating, especially to libertarians and, and to us at Cato, is just how much of the uh, more than 100 pages of opinions were devoted to um, Lochner. Now, Lochner is the bakery case. It's the working hours in bakery case, which has stood in uh, left-wing law circles for 50 years as a totem of, oh, it's terrible to protect these <coughs> non-enumerated rights of um, uh, freedom of contract, for you know, freedom of economic activity. And the vehement and prolonged attack on Lochner turns up in 
the uh, Chief Justice Roberts' dissent, saying, oh, about creating a right to gay marriage, you're just going back to the old days of laissez-faire, in which courts would intervene to protect people's rights to deal with each other voluntarily. And that was all discredited. And in doing so, I, you know, Chief Justice Roberts uh, w looked 30 years out of date. First, he looked as if he was trying to get an A in some <laughs> course being taught at Harvard Law School uh, by one of the old liberal lions <laughs> back when he was going to, to, to law school. But uh, he ignored the fact that there's been 30 years of scholarship on Lochner and that whole era, um, tending to rehabilitate a lot of it, tending to show that the courts were being more principled, uh, were identifying often uh, special interest legislation, uh, and were very cautious and careful about the unenumerated rights that they were choosing to protect. So when I saw that, I thought, you know, um, Chief Justice Roberts thinks that gay marriage is going to reusher in an age of laissez-faire protected by the Constitution. Hmm. You know, I can I can live with that. Yeah. See, that's a throwback to the old Bork Borkian era of the seventies, eighties, and nineties. This uh, this assault on Lochner. And what was at issue there? The right to freedom of contract. So here we go with the third. Remember, uh, uh, talking about right to sexual practices, right to gay uh, to same sex marriage. That was right to freedom of contract. And we can come up the right to send your child to a non-governmental school, the right to teach your child in the government, the right to sell and use contraceptives. These are all different rights that come under different descriptions as the case comes before the court. And so you, what, you, what you find is that the, is that the conservative, you, oh yes, now you asked uh, earlier, uh, uh, did the 10th or 9th Amendments uh, make it into, yes, the 10th Amendment very expressly in Scalia's dissent. Mm -hmm. He didn't raise the Ninth Amendment. He talked about powers that are retained by the states or the people. He didn't mention rights that are retained by the people. And it, it's, it's interesting because when I think of the Ninth, Amendment, Ninth and Tenth Amendments, uh, typically I think of them combining to protect but not not necessarily putting the the two of those in tension with one another. Not which, in which tension. They can, in which fact, they can be right. In fact, they go together uh, just perfectly. The ninth makes it clear that we have rights both enumerated and unenumerated. The tenth makes it clear that the federal government has only those powers that are enumerated, failing which the powers belong to the states or to the people never having been given to either level of government. This is from uh, Chief Justice Roberts' dissent in uh, this case, allowing unelected federal judges to select which unenumerated rights rank, rank as fundamental as to strike down state laws on the basis of that determination raises obvious concerns on the basis of that, uh, on the judicial role. Our precedents have accordingly insisted that judges, quote, exercise the utmost care in identifying implied fundamental rights, lest the liberty protected by the due process clause be subtly transformed into the policy preferences of the members of this court. So what, you know, what, I guess, what is the big disagreement that, that these gentlemen, uh, Kennedy and Roberts and the three other dissenters, are, what is the fundamental disagreement that they're having? Well, about the role of the court. Uh, I wish uh, uh, Roberts yesterday had been more solicitous about the uh, modesty of the court uh, as he was here. No, this is about whether we're to be ruled by nine or, as the case may be, five black-robed judges who cannot be uh, thrown out because they've got life tenure or by m democratic majorities. And the Constitution addresses that 
in just the way that I said in the in response to the to the previous point. Uh, it is a serious concern because you can imagine um, run amok judges, right? Just as you can imagine run amok majorities. That's why the court, the justices, have to have a conception of the theory of rights that stands behind the Constitution. It's a theory that protects liberty. It's not a theory that gives us all kinds of welfare rights that then the government is obligated to recognize by taxing us to death to provide it with them. That's the fundamental distinction. That's why Lochner was rightly decided, freedom of contract. Griswold was rightly decided, the right to sell and use contraceptives. Lawrence v. Texas was rightly decided, and so too this case today. <coughs> And I'd like to pursue those um, uh, cases of uh, either unenumerated or at least controversial rights a little bit more because from generation to generation, uh, sometimes it's the conservatives who like and identify them. Sometimes it's the liberals who like and identify them. We have that series of cases which um, seem to include liberal and conservative fa favorites, both um, uh, Roger mentioned Griswold on contraceptives, but the two in the 1930s and 40s, Pierce versus Society of Sisters, controversial at the time. Is there a right to send your child to a religious school or does everyone have to send them to public school? Right now, that would count as bedrock conservative. Um, you know, if they are confident of nothing else, they are confident that that should be good constitutional law. And yet that was seen as Lochnerism at the time. Uh, Meyer versus Nebraska, do you have the right to instruct your own child as part of family life in a foreign language? Uh, or can it be struck down on grounds of uh, anti-German sentiment? Again, these are now the building blocks of a theory of family autonomy from the intrusion of the state that is terribly dear to conservatives. And they are part of the same structure with Griswold Although, and with Obergefell. I've got to jump in here because with an anecdote, I was battling Scalia in the hallway of the Mayflower Hotel um, back a few years ago on this issue of substantive due process with respect to such cases as Meyer v. Nebraska, that's the 1923 case that upheld a right to teach your child in a foreign language, and, and Pierce v. Society of Sisters, the 1925 case that allowed you to uh, send your child to a non-governmental school as against the Oregon statute that required you to send them government schools. I said, well, you probably would have uh, found that, uh, that I said, this is clear, you probably would have found that uh, uh, Pierce and uh, Myers were wrongly decided. Yes, I would, he said. That's, that's, how, that's how strict he is about keeping the court out of these decisions, which are left to the political branches. And of course, they were left to them. And what did the political branches do? They told you, you can't teach your child in a foreign language. You can't send your child to a non-governmental school. All right. I have a couple of questions that are uh, similar here. Uh, Tyler and Jason Trometer both asked the question, could states begin the end of issuing marriage licenses, which, by the way, is a strongly uh, supported by libertarians, which is to uh, get out of the marriage business entirely. Well, strongly supported by some libertarians, there is, in fact, a that's range right, that's of opinion. Right. Because um, once you dive into areas of inheritance law, um, 
domestic relations, countless other things, you realize that there is a desperate practical need to have an on-off switch of when people are presumed to inherit, when they are presumed to be able to answer the door and take a FedEx package from, for, for someone. Um, marriage accomplishes that. And in the absence of government certification, uh, you get a great many legal uncertainties that people would be forced to invest in, in getting around. Now, uh, the, the sentiment behind it, the idea that the government should try to withdraw from uh, turning marriage into a policy instrument, I sympathize with. But you um, have to look before you leap. And uh, Jason Kosnicki of the Cato Institute did a good policy analysis on this, uh, saying that uh, given all the different ways in which law, not just government programs, but law itself intrudes in our lives, we need to know whether we're married or not. Now, this comes up especially in the dissolution of marriage, uh, the uh, child uh, the child custody, so on and so forth. I mean, in, but marriage, in the context in which it exists today as an institution, is both a fundamental right and a government franchise uh, because government is, is – it issues licenses for that oh, sort well, of thing. Well, that's because when the rubber hits the road, as in a divorce action uh -huh. or a, a child custody dispute – uh, the court has to sort it out. Therefore, it has to know, as, Will, as Wally just suggested, whether there is a legitimate marriage here or not. It comes up in common law marriage contexts, for example. Not so much anymore because we don't have much left of common law marriage. But again, you can have a process that is more automatic in which a couple goes to City Hall and registers saying, we wish our property to be um, uh, considered to be in common or whatever the rules are for uh, marriage. We wish um, the rules of marriage to apply to inheritance or consortium issues uh, or, or responsibility for each other's debts. Um, <clears throat> During the progressive period, which is responsible for so much mischief in the development of American law, there were efforts to regulate marriage in various ways, to apply long waiting periods in which you had to wait out tests for diseases. A whole bunch of different things were put in on a policy basis that restricted uh, people's right to simply get solemnized the fact that they wished to be responsible for each other's legal obligations and the other incidents of marriage. Uh, a libertarian approach would be to say, no, this is not an occasion for the government to start imposing policy on people. It's an occasion for the courts to recognize a voluntary registration of a voluntary relationship. And the issue comes up in other ways, too, uh, right at the outset, namely uh, uh, laws relating to degrees of consanguinity or age of consent. And this is coming up in parts of the country today uh, where you have uh, Muslim populations and arranged marriages, especially with very, very young girls. Uh, and so here, too, the state has an interest in, uh, in children. Uh, and so these – and, of course, in the degrees of consent, you can't marry your sister, for example, that kind of thing. All right. A question here from Philip Delitsky. Philip, thank you for the question. How does today's decision interact with the Hobby Lobby decision uh, in, in the co context of services being denied based upon religious beliefs? This is an issue that is lurking. Uh, Kennedy addressed it. Uh, the uh, Alito addressed it in his dissent. Um, and it comes up because, as Alito said, as a result of this decision today, we're going to see a movement to marginalize religious people who may have religious scruples against same-sex marriage, and that is not an inconsiderable concern. Um, and it manifests itself, as we saw after Hobby Lobby, 
when the state uh, uh, marriage RIFRA, uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act uh, statutes uh, came up, Indiana and Arkansas, you remember, a few months ago, where this small pizzeria uh, declined in Indiana, declined to uh, serve a uh, same-sex marriage, and they were, were they were, I think it was a hypothetical wedding. Wasn't uh, it? Yes, I think so. That's right. <laughs> and and they were subject to unbelievable uh, attacks, uh, which which uh, resulted in, uh, uh, well, I, I guess great great loss. But then there was a re- reaction, and people started sending them money. And I think they it, it was something like eight hundred thousand dollars. They, 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 they were unwilling uh, uh, advocates on this yeah. issue. Yeah, yeah. of course, is. A statutory device. It's not part of constitutional law. It's uh, uh, a law at the federal level and a law at, at some state levels which attempt to provide uh, uh, accommodation options or rights of accommodation to uh, people um, with religious objections to participating in um, uh, government programs or, or uh, interactions with the law in other ways. Now, uh, there's a range of views on exactly how uh, refers should work or whether they're a good idea. But I think with the extreme cases such as that raised by the Solicitor General or raised in a dis- discussion with the Solicitor General during oral argument, which is uh, would a church be vulnerable to having its tax exemption struck down because it differed from public policy on this, that should ring very loud alarm bells. Um, uh, it's a little bit shocking that um, the government would uh, use a mechanism like religious tax exemption to differentiate between religions it liked that were closer to public policy and religions that were more dissident that it wouldn't give an exemption to. Uh, this should alarm everyone, religious or not religious, uh, because it is uh, the first uh, cloud on the horizon of the use of tax exemption and taxation in order to enforce uh, uniformity of thought and uh, enforce in being closer to what is currently considered to be good thinking. Uh, and everyone needs to uh, make clear, I think, uh, America should not go there. There are clear cases where uh, there shouldn't be any problem. I mean, the protection is extended to clergy who may object to same sex, performing same-sex marriage ceremonies. They will be protected, we hope at least. Um, and, and I think that's pretty safe. However, uh, when you get to public uh, accommodations, that's where you start to see some thin lines. For example, if you run this, this to take this pizzeria, for example, and you hold yourself to be open to the public, you can't discriminate it to someone who comes in and wants to order a pizza in order to, um, uh, you know, and, and, and clearly it's a same-sex uh, ma- marriage situation. But then you, you go the next step. Do they then have to cater uh, or does the printer have to print the wedding uh, invitations for same-sex marriage? A, a, a Jewish print, an Orthodox Jewish printer, for example. And you could so th- that thin line between if you hold yourself open to the public uh, and therefore serve someone who comes in, versus you going out to actually participate in the ceremony. And I think we're going to see litigation along those lines. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and Roger Pallon is vice president for legal affairs at the Cato Institute. You can read more of their work at cato.org.